Hello, everyone. Welcome again to another podcast on StealthBay.com. I am your host, Harry Tahim. On our last episode, we actually had Kamel here, who was giving us some information about cybersecurity in the automotive industry. So if you're interested about learning how to hack cars, definitely check out our previous episode. For today, I'd like to introduce another guest speaker. We have Meryl Fernan, who is a senior security engineer working as a Purple Team Program Lead. For those that don't know, I follow Meryl on LinkedIn. I actually enjoy her content because she's always posting really positive content. It's really nice to see. So Meryl, welcome to our show. Thanks. Thanks so much for having me. Happy to be here. Yeah, thanks for being here. So I got to start off with literally the million dollar question that I know everyone asks me. People have heard of blue teaming. People have heard of red teaming. And everyone says, what the heck is purple teaming? Did people just throw another color out there? You know, kind of, it was kind of like, how do we, how would you define it? How would you explain it to people? Yeah. So number one question I get the most actually in the course of my job, because uh, I do have to educate my coworkers on what I do. A lot of them are like, not really sure what it is I'm doing over here for the organization to explain what purple teaming is. And to do that, I like to start by explaining what it isn't. So purple teaming is not more pen testing. It's not just throwing red and blue teams together and calling it a day. It does bring together the functions of blue teaming, in other words, defenders, and um, red teams, in other words, offensive, and brings it together in a collaborative function. So I always like to say purple team is a collaborative function uh, between red and blue teams to actively, measurably improve security, improve defenses. So with the hope of every purple team exercise, we're hoping to move the needle a little bit. At least that's my favorite approach and the approach that I think a lot of people should adopt very early on in the maturity stages of purple teaming. It can grow to CTF style, catch me if you can, Um, you know, red and blue don't talk at all. They don't know what's going on with each other. You have a liaise in the middle, Um, but those are very sophisticated operations. And I find that you really need to be Your blue team needs to be really, really on their shit before you should try something like that. So uh, the point of purple teaming, um, I always say our number one metric is resilience. The point of purple teaming is to be able to demonstrate your company's resilience to proactively thwart or reactively recover from a cyber attack. And that's what purple teaming does. Okay, perfect. No, that is that think that makes things more clear because I, I feel like there's always like this misconception of what people think it really is. So they, they think we're doing more pen testing or they yeah. think that you just have a red teamer right along with your blue side, like your SOC analyst, like while a red team engagement is happening. And I'm like, that's a style you can do, definitely. Um, not really the most conducive and effective style for me though, I think. How would someone get into purple teaming? Like I know people ask, like, do I need to have certain skills? How would you kind of suggest they get into that field? Yeah, the truth is, um, I always say uh, anyone can be a purple teamer. Purple teamers can come from anywhere. And it's it's kind of such a shitty answer because when administrators are like, I really want to build a dedicated purple team, which is very exciting. We're seeing that more and more now. Um, or they're looking for a dedicated purple team role. They're like, who do I look for? What are the skills and capabilities that someone needs to have in order to be able to capably do this? And uh, the truth is that uh, a lot of purple teamers are former red teamers who just kind of got really sick of poning things really, really well and turning in reports and not really having any insight or idea into whether that thing was fixed or not. Um, so they're generally red teamers who want to start helping the blue side actively mitigate, or they could be uh, blue teamers, anyone from CTI, detection engineering teams, SOC analysts, risk, enterprise risk people even, uh, who have an interest in offensive capabilities. So they'll generally start doing it themselves. This is how I started. I started as a pen tester. Uh, working for a company with not very many resources and the defensive resources had no time for my collaborative pen test exercises. So I was like, give me access to the sim, give me access to the threat hunting platforms. And I'm just going to threat hunt myself. I know where I'm doing stuff. I'm just going to make sure that all the things that should be somewhere, if we had to investigate a real IOC are there. 
And I started doing that myself. Um, so that's how a lot of people will start. A blue teamer who's already got access to those things can teach themselves some offensive capability, exploit and post-exploit activities and start demonstrating value in a purple team sense in that way. Um, or it's going to be a red teamer like I was at Zoom where I was on the dedicated red team, but I built the purple team program alongside my role as a red teamer. Purple teaming can and should play into the continuous feedback loop of red team operations, right? Like CTI influences the red team op, red team op is executed. Execute those TTPs and repeatable actions again over and over and over and educate the blue side actively on you know adversarial mindset um pieces of information we go for and how it furthers our actions and objectives and teach them what to look for teach them how certain actions will look on the reactive side in logs or you know if they're not seeing anything why aren't they seeing it and if they did see something they wouldn't have thought was suspicious before maybe now they'll investigate it and they'll be like oh i remember when they were doing that in the exercise it looked like this which wasn't really that suspicious but if I can correlate other things to it, now you're getting a really well-rounded defender and you're those those things that must be manual, right? The investigations are more value added. And uh, you're trying to do that without severely increasing false positives, which everybody loves. So, and you're not just sending red team findings to an endless backlog of tickets that no one's ever going to look at, at least not for a good year. So it really benefits red teams. It benefits blue teams. It benefits CTI and detection engineering teams. Purple teamers can come from anywhere at any time. I say just start. Perfect. Yeah. No, that's a good way of looking <laughs> at it. Answer. No, that, that's actually good. <laughs> actually brings up another question because the next question I kind of had was how would an organization build this process? And I think you kind of enter part of that, which is, you know, I've seen some organizations, they don't actually have, like, they don't even have a red team or they might not even have a CTI team. How would you build that out? If you had to build an organization, how would you build that structure and the different teams and how would they collaborate? Yeah, I definitely recommend um, myself, George Archiles, and Dan DeClos from FlexTrack. Uh, George is from Scythe. We are the ones out there kind of purporting this new maturity model where you don't necessarily start purple teaming after you have a dedicated red team. We think it really makes sense to start to bring a purple teamer on before that. And that's because you're giving yourself your best chance to baseline defenses and, and really confirm that defenses are working as intended and not just, well, we think they should work. So let's just have the red team fire all the missiles and find out just how wrong we were, right? You're like, you've confirmed a lot of these things in purple team exercise. And you're like, all right, if this per if this red team is emulating APT 11, we know exactly how we should stand up to their TTPs. So what do they got? How successful were they? How correct were we in our testing? And that's demonstrating resilience, which is excellent. So I think SMBs, startups, um, even large bank size enterprises getting something started, really you're just gonna wanna give someone the time and resources to start doing a lot of research, right? They should still be using CTI to influence what they're doing or we're just throwing darts at the minor matrix and guessing what TTPs are the most valuable for the org. Uh, so purple teams wanna be really context-driven because that's where you're gonna get the most value for your TTP buck. So I just recommend that you let someone start dedicating to that research and start educating themselves in adversarial actions um, for one of your threat actors and scope for your org, right? And teaching themselves the threat hunting and the logging and the active, like if someone knows the, the active defense or how to secure something, they should know the equal but opposite exploit for that. Or if they're really, really good at knocking the shit out of the cloud, maybe you send them to some boot camps learning how to secure and learning how all the cloud native defenses should work in tandem together. And like, and then they can, they're a walking one person purple team, they can do both pieces themselves. So I think when you're at the point, we're going to start contracting out pen test engagements, maybe your regular, your regulatory uh, framework requires it, maybe some vendor that you work with requires it, maybe you just want to see how well your defenses stand up, which is a great outlook to have. Um, bring on a purple teamer first, do some in-house QA, some like pre-testing, and then see how well 
you stand up? Like, what were the gaps that you missed? What were the things that you were spot on about? And how well did you test and document them? And that's how you can start building a purple team program. It like, it, it's like, seems like this weird squirrel of a, like, of a thing to quantify, but really it just comes in the actions and it comes in the benefits that a lot of departments will see from executing actions in this like collaborative way. Okay, nice. Yeah, no, that's a great way to explain it. Because I think there are always people, especially leaders like that don't understand purple teaming. So it's like, it's always nice to have a way to kind of list out why things are needed and how it actually benefits them at the end of the day. Yeah, everyone's like, we need a purple team. What is that, by the way? <laughs> like, what are they doing over there? It's like, do you know why you need one? I, I tend to ask people like, what are you hoping to see from the purple team? Like, do you have in-house offensive ops? Do you contract externally? Like, what are you not getting that you're hoping purple can do? Or do you have no idea what it is? And you're just hoping someone will tell you what it can do. So people who are going to start building purple team programs are usually going to do it from scratch. It's a highly tailored product to every org's needs, every org's threat actors, every org's current security processes and organization, like the physical org of their department, right? Like no two security departments look the same. People who are going to build these programs need to be really well-versed in exactly what a purple team can provide, what its capabilities are and what its capabilities aren't. Because if stakeholders aren't sure what they're asking for, you need to say, well, it really sounds like you need a pen test, or it really sounds like you need a red team engagement, or it really sounds like you have no idea what you're doing. So I can come in and start doing this immediately. And if you think that's valuable, then great. But if not, then I'm not sure if this is the right program to help you. Would you say, because one of the things I've seen, and you brought this up just recently, is a lot of organizations will try to go out to, you know, externally bring, get a pen test done. Would you say it's better to maybe even build internal teams? I know it's more costly for a business, but what would you say on, on that aspect? I would say it depends on the needs of your organization because external pen tests are expensive, but you only get them once annually, which means you have 12 whole months to remediate those findings before you test again. When you have an in-house pen testing team or offensive department, their cadence of operations is much more frequent. Um, they're able to have a three-week bullet period, one week to report, turn around and kick off another one. So it just depends, like, how well are you going to start addressing the findings they've already found? How much of an uphill battle are they fighting to get certain things implemented? Are your red teamers going to get bored? Again, beating up, getting all their objectives accomplished first two days of the exercise, and now they're just bored. Is there going to be a decrease in blue team morale because that's happening? I actually worked on one red team where the blue was like, can you stop for two quarters? Can you just stop and let us catch up? And we're like, no, we have OKRs. Like we have to execute so many of these a year. So we had to start finding other ways to accomplish a red team objective without just like making them feel defeated. If you have enough work to keep that pen tester busy, sure. If your blue team operations, not that, you know, they're immature, so to speak, but if they need that catch up time, maybe don't bring someone in house just yet. You will save a lot of money because pen tests, you know, on the cheap side are like 20K and on the nice side are like 90. So you will probably save some money bringing someone in house full time, but you don't want that person to be bored. You don't want them to feel like their time is wasted. And you also don't want to make the other teams feel bad as a result of bringing that person on board. There's one thing I wanted to ask as well, because I know a lot of our listeners might be new to the field or want to get into the cybersecurity field. So one of the questions that I always like to pose out is to our guests is to really learn about their journey. Um, so kind of interested on how you got into cybersecurity, because I, I know some people that went through sort of the traditional, you know, IT route. And then there's tons of people I know now that are starting to come in from various other departments and organizations that, you know, aren't in IT. So kind of want to learn your journey of how you got into it. Yeah, I haven't told the story in a minute. So for those of you who aren't familiar with my journey, 
Uh, I only started working in cybersecurity and tech as a whole three years ago. Before that, I was a social media marketing manager, speaking of people who come in from non-technical backgrounds. When I got hired in my first role in cybersecurity, it was to be a risk analyst. So I was an enterprise risk analyst. Uh, so I worked a lot with like the third-party risk program and like the SOC 2 type 2 audits. That was so great because when I got hired on, I told them, I don't know anything technical. And I didn't. I didn't know how IP addressing even worked. I didn't know anything except that like Windows is an operating system, I'm pretty sure. So I told them I didn't know anything, but I told them I learned fast, I retained well. And one of my soft skills I bring to the table is that I can take highly technical and complex concepts and explain them to laymen and non-technical people, which is highly beneficial for a cybersecurity department because how they demonstrate value to the org is to be able to tie the technical things they do and give it business value. So I started becoming the face person of my my department, attending a lot of meetings. I'm like, I have to know your work and your work and your work really, really well so I can talk about it to other people. Uh, so I got to learn a lot about security controls, working with audit um, and exactly how those controls are demonstrated and documented and where they come from and why we do them, you know, regulatory and the company policies and the standards and the procedures and to audits and things like that. So it was really beneficial. Worked as a risk analyst for three months. They flew uh, a position for a pen tester. And at that point, I'd been helping my boss write pen test reports um, on findings she had found, but like she didn't have time to do the reporting. So I was doing a lot of the reporting for her. And I also stepped into managing like our DLP tool and like our, uh, our asset and vulnerability management platform. And I was doing some low level like vulnerability assessing, but not really management. And I was like, I think I could be your pen tester. I understand your security strategy, your outlook. I'm well-versed in MITRE. I learned all these things. And, and they were like, well, you have to have a security plus to interview for this job at least. And I was like, okay, I could go get one of those. And they're like, well, the job closes in two weeks. So good luck. So I went out and got a security plus in two weeks <laughs> and I made them give me an interview and I talked them into letting me be their pen tester. And here I am two and a half years later. <laughs> so that was my journey into cybersecurity. That's awesome. Actually, that leads to another question. This is something that I, I always hear a lot of new people that are entering ask as well. Are there any certifications you would recommend for someone that's starting off and maybe even someone that's going into maybe purple teaming or something, some course or some certification that that would lead into that? I would say certifications do have their value because unfortunately you are going to have to get past a filter to get to some interviews like me, right? To interview for this job must have a sec plus. Okay, fine. But I had one mentee who couldn't get her sec plus for her life. She tested three times and she and I could talk about it and she could pass practice tests and she's a really good security professional, but just could not pass this damn test for her life. And I'm like, you know, what's so much more valuable than having the cert is having the knowledge. Could you take it and implement it into a security program? Do you understand where and why your controls come from and all the various facets of controls and all the other departments and the stakes that they have and how change control works and configuration management works and all these things. So, um, um, I don't like to purport certifications a ton. I would say they're a necessary evil sometimes. Uh, I myself now have a master's in cybersecurity that I finished last year. I do have a CEH. I had to take it twice to pass it. <laughs> it was not an easy test to pass. And I didn't pass Pentest Plus, but I have a CEH. So do with that what you will. Um, so it's not always demonstrative as your, of your ability to do the job. You know, I do this job every day and I don't have an OSCP. I don't have all those fancy things. There are other ways to demonstrate your value. 
Um, that's why I'm such a big proponent, a big advocate online of building a personal brand. Like no one was going to give me these opportunities. I had to demonstrate that I had this knowledge and how I apply it. And that is what brought opportunities to me, especially because I don't have a ton of certs and I was a single parent. So I didn't have the money to go get the certs, even if I believed in them. So I didn't have anything until this last year. I didn't have my CEH until this year. So I think you can get far without them. I'm proof of that. It's not typical. Unfortunately, it's, it's very atypical for the industry, but I would just say, don't just sit in the lab and say, I'm top 1% on try hack me. Tell me how you can take the thing that you pwned or hacked or accessed and apply it to any environment. How would you tailor it and use it outside of that lab? What did it teach you? What capability do you now have? And don't just focus on your metrics or all you're going to be to your company is a metric. How many certs do you have? And how many try hack me boxes have you pwned this month? And I never wanted to be in that position. So I just didn't do it. Yeah, I could totally relate for me personally as well. I think the, the certification area is there's some that I feel you, you know, might not have a lot of lab work. Like I am all about lab work. I feel like if it's just a book and you read it and you pass it, did I really learn anything? But the ones with labs I find are pretty good because you at least can apply what you've learned. And then a lot of times you can take it to your job and start to apply it there, at least as a baseline and build from that. Yeah, they're great because for a lot of technical roles, uh, they will probably give you a hands-on capstone part of your interview where you have to prove it very OSCP style. Everyone's like, oh, I need an OSCP. I'm like, do you though? Don't you want to be like a web app pen tester? There is no web app in the OSCP. It's all network pivot. It's not necessarily the most industry relevant skills you can give yourself either. If you want to be industry relevant, learn cloud. That's all book. Then up accounts in AWS and start spinning up things and destroying them and figuring out how to secure them and how to unsecure them and like make yourself dangerous that way. That's what I did. I just picked a skill I thought would be relevant. I could have been wrong, but I gambled. I picked a skill I thought would be relevant like cloud, made myself an expert in it, made myself an expert in hacking it. And I would like, there are no, there were no cloud hacker certifications back then. So like, what are you going to do? With security in mind, if you couldn't purple team and you had to pick some other area to be in, where would you, where would you put yourself and why? I always love audit. I'm, I'm one of those freaks who loves audits. I just do. I'm like, oh, you think you can hide something from me? I'm going to find it. Probably what makes me such a good hacker. But if I was not in purple teaming, I would probably go into um, cloud architecting, more of an ISO architect type function for the cloud. Uh, I think the cloud is really fascinating. I think it, it's topography and how it functions and how it does not directly translate to on-prem traditional data components and like its data flow and stuff. Like it's all really big zoo and no one understands it very well, but you can spin it up in five seconds. A five-year-old can do it, but you can't make it very secure very easily. And, you know, it's centrally accessible. It's the thing everyone's relying on nowadays. So that would probably be the hottest niche. That or I would learn to code much better than I can right now. And I would become, like a DevSecOps freaking guru. Like if you can master DevSecOps, holy shit, you could save the balls of so many companies like Zoom and Meta and TikTok and all these places who desperately need those skills. Yeah, I think automation is really taking off these days. I, I think people underestimate it of how useful it is. So having those skills, um, especially coding skills like you brought up, Python is huge now these days. Yeah, I got a very late start to the game. So like, if I started learning a language three years ago, I would probably be decent at it today. Like I can edit and I can script in some things, but I can, I'm not a code slinger. And I envy people who are like, I wish I had a tool to do this. And they just code one up and they're like, there you go. I'm like, oh, that is so cool. <laughs> so that's what I would pick. How do you kind of keep up with growing your own skills over time? Like, is there certain things you do, courses you take to kind of always stay relevant in the industry? I honestly just kind of pick new challenges. I pick something I don't know. 
And I had a video out about this uh, like a year ago before I went radio silent for a while because uh, I was drinking from too many fire hoses last year. But I always say if something scares you, make it your best friend until you make it your bitch. So right now I'm purple teaming a Kubernetes based PaaS platform and I don't know Kubernetes at all. I'm not container friendly at all. So I'm like, listen, I'm going to be very honest. I don't know your platform, but I know the methodology. So I can bring myself up to speed on container things if you're good with giving me that learning curve and like, but it was a new challenge. It's a scary challenge. So uh, I was like, I'm just going to take on a project with something I don't know. So I have to become an expert in it and do it that way. Uh, so don't say no to new challenges. Don't say no to collaborating on a project where you have no business collaborating on that project because you don't know it that well and learn from the people who freaking do and become little mini versions of them. And you'll be so useful. And also those cool projects are probably where like the in-demand skills are. I like to look to those around me first. Another place where I focus is um, obviously the job in front of me. So I'm going to get the most return on investment for my skills and my time and my learning if I'm able to do the job in front of me. And then I look around that. So I'm like, let's say I didn't know cloud very well, but I was forced to learn container. Then I would turn my sights to say, well, the container lives in the cloud. So now it's time to learn AWS and GCP and Azure and all these things and start making sure that like, I'm not good at one lane of this thing. I'm good at this thing backwards, forwards, inside out. And then again, if I did that, I would just pick like, let's say this company went under tomorrow. This platform failed. The customer doesn't like it. What's the next in demand skill? And I would get really good at that skill. So I'd probably start getting good at coding. I just think pick someone you follow and admire. Um, or pick someone whose career you want to emulate. Like, if you're like, I want to be a VP of that one day, look at what they did and do exactly what they did and learn the skills they learned, but learn them relevant to today's landscape. Don't necessarily read the same books they read because they might be outdated now. Emulate the same skills they had. They, if they went and did a stint in financial, learn financial. If they went and got an MBA to help them out, then get an MBA. If, if you don't need that, then don't do it. Totally can relate there. I remember back in the day, like everything was on-prem. So like that was a thing to learn. Then cloud comes out and there's still some people that I think are working in the on-prem world. But I think, yeah, gaining that skill for the cloud world, is, it's huge. It seems like everybody's just moving out there now. And it's like, that's the relevant skill you need to have. I met a guy who's like, I refuse to learn the cloud. I refuse. I'm done learning new things now. And I was like, bro, you're going to be obsolete in three years. Like you're going to, they're going to migrate. And then what are you going to do? Exactly. <laughs> So like, look at the forward thinking companies, like pick a company you want to work for or a company like one you want to work for. If you want to work for a boutique like app based startup, look at another one like that and like, see what kind of positions they're hiring for. Who are they hiring? Are they hiring developers? Are they hiring ISOs? Are they hiring um, analysts? And those are the skills you should learn because there is a relevant job market for that right now. So OSINT, I guess, do your OSINT. Yes. The good. OSINT never lies. Exactly. That's good. That's a good point. There's one other thing you, just, you briefly discussed earlier, which was, and I wanted to kind of go back to that, was your time as a cyber threat hunter. If someone was kind of looking to get into that world, what's like the day-to-day -day for that? Someone that someone's like, hey, I want to be a threat hunter. And you have to explain, this is what your day-to-day -day might look like. Threat hunters, uh, your day-to-day -day is doing a lot of investigation. So alerts come in and those are just the alerts you know about, by the way. Those come in, you know, you gotta, you gotta Google hash sums and signatures and programs and like known domains um, and see if something your platform or tool has triggered on was a value added use of your time. This is the third time this week I've investigated this freaking domain. It's not malicious. Do what we got to do to improve this and get this out of the, the alerts. It's in the logging, fine, but not in the alerts. Um, so you're doing a lot of that. 
you're doing a lot of staying up on your CTI, your cyber threat intel. So you're doing a lot of research. If uh, Cozy Bear is one of your threat actors in scope, what is Cozy Bear up to? What was the last thing they did that new or different than stuff they've known to, to do? Or did they just get lucky on old versions of something and one of their old run books just happened to work? Um, and then you know to look for those things. Okay, what are the IOCs for those things? How did it look? Oh, someone found it in a log and it looked like this. If I ever see that, that's bad. Can I build an alert on that? Can I build an alert on that without getting 50 of them every day. So you really need to start thinking like your day-to-day -day is going to be through this process of these investigations, seeing how you play a part in the bigger picture and trying to optimize those processes and optimize those alerts and becoming an expert in your threat actors and their IOCs and their capabilities. Uh, it's, a, it's an exciting job if you can deal with going through the minutia, but like literally I would have to be like search on Shaw hash, all these alerts closed. <laughs> Did one. I know all the rest of these are bullshit. Uh, and then you can, but you'll get into some good stuff. You'll find some jazzy malware and you'll take it and you'll upload it to Virus Total and use their sandbox. Be like, what did this do? Oh, oh, you open that? Oh, shit. Oh, that's bad. Okay, this is bad. This is DEF CON 2. Raise all the red flags. Make sure this is off all the endpoints. And that's kind of, it's like really bad to say, but it's really fun to do threat hunting work middle of an incident. Remember there was one time we had an incident. We all literally cleared our calendar, shut ourselves up in a conference room. And I had the most fun I have ever had looking for bad things in the network. It was the best. Uh, so yeah, threat hunting is a lot of fun. Yeah, it's, I feel like you start looking at logs and you find things, especially when you're passionate, you're so into it. You're like, where does this go? And then you have another finding. And next thing you know, it you can build up the story and find things that like, almost amaze you, right? You're like, oh, you, and you get away from all those false positives, which I think become kind of repetitive and boring almost in some sense. And you finally got something exciting going. I mean, it's like 50, 50, 60% false positives, but occasionally you find something really jazzy and you get to write a big report and like show people how bad it is, freak them out a little bit and tell them, give them the signature so they can go find it and eradicate it from everywhere. But you kind of have to have the hacker mindset. You kind of have to like, oh, how bad is this? Go down that rabbit hole. Now I've confirmed it's bad. Now we go down the rabbit hole of fixing it. And uh, it can be very exciting post-incident. Yeah. So with that mind now, um, I want to move to our um, rapid fire round um, as we get closer to the end of this podcast. So pretty interesting um, section where we're just going to throw a question at you. Um, whatever just pops up in your mind, just throw that out. Um, and it'll be kind of like a quick, uh, quick question and answer game. Ravenclaw. Kidding. You're in the zone. <laughs> <laughs> All right. The first question, it, it, it's more of a Canadian question, I guess. So let, let's see how you do on this one. Would you live in Toronto or live in Vancouver? I live in Toronto. Your favorite movie? Uh, the Empire Strikes Back. Fill in the blank. The best red team tool is? The best red team tool is Mythic. It's my favorite C2 framework. <laughs> or, or the one that you write. The best red team tool is the one that you write for yourself. Last book you read? Uh, the Phoenix Project. I'm in the middle of reading it right now. DevSecOps. What was one of your best and worst subjects or classes you took at school? Oh, my best subject is foreign language. I can speak four foreign languages. I just take to them like, it's not fair. And my worst subject is definitely biology. I didn't even try chemistry, but um, yeah, biology, I worked my butt off and I barely got like a B minus. And I'm like, that's not for me. From now on, I'm taking math-based science and AP physics and I were much better friends <laughs> than biology and I. <laughs> if you could pick one single antivirus solution on your laptop to install, what would that be? Uh, it's not really antivirus, but I would go with the Palo Alto Global Protect Agent. Uh, I'm a big fan of their work, and I think their EDR solution is top-notch. If not them, then I would probably go with the Rapid7 uh, MDR agent. You're welcome, you guys. I know, right? Free advertising <laughs> right there. Cats or dogs? Dogs. I've never owned a cat. What part of the day are you most productive? I am most productive in the mid-morning. Uh, I try to hit the gym early. 
like to get it out of the way. And then I'm hyper productive after that. And then I hit a slump right around four o'clock where like not like all the creativity is gone. And it's time to recharge after that. Yeah. I have days where like, I'll wake up and rearrange my entire apartment by 8am. And then I have days where like, I sleep in until two o'clock and absolutely nothing gets done. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's already close to four. Not happening. Last show you binge watched. Little Birds, I'm in the middle of binge watching right now, but the last show I completed binge watching was Becoming Elizabeth because I'm a history nerd. <laughs> <laughs> okay, red team or blue team if you had to choose? Red team. <laughs> nice. If you could live in another country, where would you want to live? Italy. This one's going to be interesting because it's coming up. Black Hat or Defcon? Defcon. Same here. Speak Italian or French for the rest of your life? I mean, je peux parler deux. I'll see. <laughs> So probably French if I had to pick just one. Your French sounds really good. Merci. Je l'étudie depuis 10 ans maintenant. Non, 14 ans maintenant. I need to translate that. Where's where <laughs> Google Translate? <laughs> All right. And the last one, and it's my favorite. One positive thing that's happened to you this week. This week? Ooh, gosh, it is Friday, isn't it? A uh, good thing that happened to me this week was... I finally got, okay, I'm doing an office glow up. I don't know if you can tell, it's a little sad. I finally got all the components I need for that ordered. So they're coming. And I'm the type of A-type that like, it took a lot of research, took a lot of research on the arm I wanted and the boom I wanted and my webcam I wanted and my mic that I wanted, which matches my jazzy keyboard. So it took a lot of research and I'm really glad that all that shopping is done and I can just set it all up. (laughs) There's no fancy lighting that you got? Oh, there's fancy lighting coming. It's just, it's in boxes still. Nice. The office glow up is coming. I'll have to share it with you. (laughs) Yes, we'll look forward to that because the lighting stuff always looks cool when you see people post it up. All right. Well, wanted to give a shout out to you, Meryl, for joining us on this podcast. Really grateful to have you here and have you share all your experiences and ventures with uh, all of our listeners here. So really appreciate it. And I know we can check out Meryl's on LinkedIn. Are there any other channels that people could link up with you on? Yes, my second most active platform is Twitter. So I'm at SheWhoHacks on Twitter, uh, H-A-C-K-S, spelled the correct way. Additionally, I uh, am going to be launching a venture uh, here at the beginning of September with two cohorts of mine. So if you're interested in staying updated on what that might be, we've been dropping hints on LinkedIn. That'll be coming soon. But please feel free to DM or interact with me at any point on LinkedIn or Twitter. Awesome. Sounds good. Once again, thanks for being here. We'll list out our social media account, Stealth Bay. Um, you can visit all of our cybersecurity blogs and podcasts on stealthbay.com for all our listeners. Thank you once again for listening. And until next time, we will see you then.